going to set up my uh, my makeshift whiteboard for me here. So we're going to do a little bit of this today. That's exciting, huh? <coughs> it's a warning that you all need to be awake this morning because we're going to be doing some interactions. So I hope you're I hope you're prepared. Okay. Uh, oh, oh, nope. Okay, wait. Oh, wow. I tested it out and everything already, and then here we are. Well, we'll just... Wow. This is the point where I'm trying to decide how committed I am to this part of the sermon. Not that committed, it turns out. Okay, well, we'll see what happens. We'll, tr- we'll try to come back here in a little while. Okay. Uh, great. Well, have you... <laughs> here we go, okay. Uh, have you guys ever met somebody who has been through and been changed by recovery? Like, one of the things I appreciate about people who have really been through that process and have been changed by it is the way that those people are so free to talk about what their lives were like before recovery. And this happens when people have looked their destructive tendencies in the face and have owned the impact of those things on themselves and on other people. They're so aware of their own weakness and susceptibility to temptation and, that they've, and they've actually come to peace with those things that they're able to talk about them freely. Like I was at a, I was at a restaurant, this was here in East Nashville, uh, back back a while ago, back before COVID and we went to restaurants. Uh, and I remember I, I asked a server about a tattoo that he had on his arm and what I got was his recovery story. And he didn't make a big to-do about it. It didn't like totally change the focus of our dinner. We were just having a conversation and he was able in a very real and refreshing way to talk about uh, the struggles he had been through in his life. And he could do it with such freedom. And guys, Paul, in the passage that we're in today, Paul is giving us his recovery story. And the passage that we're in is, is theologically, it's very dense. And Paul is talking about the core of his gospel message. Some people would point to this passage in Philippians and say this passage is the sum of all of Paul's theology, kind of condensed into these 11 verses. But Paul isn't just delivering an academic discourse here. Paul is sharing his story. This chunk of scripture is, is infused with all kinds of personal pronouns. Paul's talking about himself and the way that this message has changed him. It's his own story of recovery from being addicted to his own righteousness. And every story of, of recovery is a story of loss, isn't it? Because to gain your sobriety, you have to lose something that you've previously relied on to comfort yourself control to control or to make sense of the world whether that's alcohol or sex or drugs you name it but in losing that thing you find that you gain so much more you get your life back and that's the same for Paul that there is a joy for him in losing his own righteousness because what he found was the life that God had created him for and Paul does more than just share his own personal recovery story. By extension, he's saying to, to you and to me, he's saying this is our story in Christ. And the reality is that to be found in Christ means that we are all recovering from addiction to our own righteousness. And if you are in Christ, that story is your story. 
And what Paul lays out for us in this passage is the road to recovery and losing our own righteousness. And he shows us how to walk in a life of recovery, how to love the loss of our own righteousness. And this is so important for us as a church. Because for us to forget that this is our story, for us to deny that we are living lives of of recovery, of being addicted to our own righteousness, is to go back to a way of living that only brings pain into our lives and to the lives of those around us. When we forget this story, this community becomes a place of judgment and self-righteousness rather than the humble, loving, gracious community that Christ intended us to be. So us owning that this is our story this morning, it matters for us. So if you would, if you have your, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Philippians 3. It's going to also be up here on the screen. Yes? Uh, so this is Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That should clue you on and clue everyone in, right? We've been talking about how joy is a theme of the book of Philippians. So this is one of our key words, rejoice. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same, the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Pray with me. Father, there's a, just a depth of, of riches here for us. Um, and we could take weeks and weeks to talk about all of the truth that is in this passage. Uh, and Lord, we have today. So pray, Father, that you would direct my words uh, to be what, what you have for us today. Uh, would you enliven our hearts with them, Lord? Would you teach us to rely not on our own righteousness, but on the righteousness that you provide for us through your Son? Amen. I want to talk a little bit about this road to recovery, of this road of losing our own righteousness that Paul is talking about here. And first, I want to talk about the word just the word righteousness, okay? For Paul, this is a really big word. It's really important for understanding Paul's theology that we would understand what he means when he's talking about righteousness. So when Paul thought about life, okay, he thought about life in relation to what happened after life. That was kind of a governing characteristic of Paul's worldview. And he believed that there would be a day when every person would stand before God in judgment. 
and that God would render a judgment on each person's life that would determine what happened after that. This is also, by the way, Jesus' perspective. Jesus talks about people standing before God in judgment often. It's a big biblical theme. And for Paul and for all the other writers of Scripture, Judgment Day is a day when people get what they deserve. And there are only two verdicts that are, that are possible. One of the verdicts is righteous. And those who are declared righteous will be welcomed into a new heavens and a new earth, which is a fitting reward for righteous living. And those who are declared unrighteous would be separated from God, right? receiving the punishment or wrath that their evil deeds deserve. So in Paul's mind, in Paul's theology, it's really important that a person be found righteous before God. And Paul is telling us in verse 9 that there are two sources of righteousness. Let me read verse 9 for you. So Paul says, He wants to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So we see these kind of two kinds of righteousness that Paul is laying out here. He's saying that before he was living in a kind of righteousness that was self-produced, a righteousness that would come from his obedience to the law. And there's another kind of righteousness that Paul presents, a kind of righteousness that can come through the work of Christ. So that's where we're going to write these two things up on the board, okay? Two kinds of righteousness. So you can just imagine that kind of compare and contrast with me. Now, it's easy to look at that and to think, well, how relevant is that for us to today, right? We hardly use the word righteous at all. And when we do, it's almost always in a negative sense. We never look at a person and say, wow, she is so righteous. I really love that about her, right? What do we say? Oh, she is so righteous. It's just a way of saying, oh, she's so self-righteous. Which you think of as a bad thing. It's worth noting that we think of self-righteousness as a negative character trait. It's easy to think, ah, geez, Paul, why all this emphasis on righteousness? It's old-timey theological concerns. What we've got to recognize, though, is that this is actually an incredibly relevant question because we live in a culture, guys, that is obsessed with righteousness. We just use different words for it. There's this, uh, this article that was in the Atlantic recently, recently, and the author says this about the United States. He says, American faith, it turns out, is as fervent as ever. It's just that what was once religious belief has now been channeled into political belief. Political debates over what America is supposed to mean have taken on the character of theological disputations. This is what religion without religion looks like. This is what religion without religion looks like. What's he saying? He's saying politics is now one of the places that we go to prove our own righteousness. That we're on a search of proving our own righteousness, our own rightness. But rather than trying to prove it to God with the way that we're living, which is what Paul was doing, we're attempting it to prove it, we're attempting to prove it to each other based on the stand that we take on certain issues. And for Paul, the pressure to be right or righteous was about an ultimate judgment day. And for us, it's a little bit often in our culture, a little bit less about ultimate judgment, but it's about the existential and ever-present, everyday judgment that we're judging on ourselves and handing out to other people. That we're always measuring our own rightness 
or asking other people to measure your own rightness. We're always living in light of how are other people seeing my own rightness. That's not our politics, it's in our relationships, right? We have all kinds of yardsticks that we use to measure our own rightness and the rightness of others. And in verse 9, Paul talks about a righteousness that comes from the law. But you could put any number of things in that, in that space of from the law. That we all seek our own righteousness, a righteousness that comes from. What would you put there? What's the place that you go to seek your own righteousness? This was going to be the place for participation, so we can, ha- we can have that. I just won't be writing it up on the board, okay? So what would be a place that you think you, you would go to prove your own righteousness? Work ethic, yeah. Look how right I am. Look how hard I work. Your intelligence, yes, absolutely. You're always measuring your own intelligence by the intelligence of other people, Right? Instagram, that's real. It's not just how many likes I have, but also how many, uh, I, how many you have and how ours compare to each other. Success, right? How well our children behave or don't com- behave compared to other people. Or why our children don't behave like other people. Well, I have a good reason for the way my kids are acting like this, so... We could go on and on and on about all the yardsticks that we use to measure our own righteousness and the righteousness of other people. And we order our lives cultivating a sense of this rightness. And like we've been saying, it's not just for ourselves, it's also for others because we all actually have this sneaking suspicion that I can't declare myself righteous. We need others to validate our righteousness. And there's no way out of that trap. I don't care how you construct your identity. We are all looking for a verdict on our own rightness that we believe has to come from outside of ourselves. Because the same people who tell us that it doesn't matter what other people think are the same people who are telling us to surround ourselves with people who will validate all of our choices. Which is really just an encouragement to enter into agreements with other people that we will always agree with each other that we are all righteous. Okay, so this kind of living it can only take us to one of two places. It either makes us incredibly insecure because I'm always living with a suspicion that I'm not actually measuring up. Or it produces totally self-absorbed, arrogant people. People who are totally 100% confident in their own righteousness. Both of those things, very destructive, right? So maybe Paul isn't actually so old-fashioned after all. Actually, Paul is hitting at something that's fundamentally human when he talks about righteousness. He's actually answering a question that we are all desperately asking. And what Paul tells us in these verses is that he has spent a lot of his life living in light of his own righteousness. That's what verses 4 through 7 are all about. So let's just step through these here. This is Paul giving people a list of the ways that he previously would have considered himself righteous. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. He's, he's telling people, this is what I was so confident in for myself. I, lo- I love that, his boldness. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, he says, I have more. Okay. This is a man who is very comfortable with uh, talking about his previous life, right? He said he was circumcised on the eighth day 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So what Paul is saying is that he found a large part of his own righteousness in his identity. He's talking about his race, his race or his ethnicity, right? His family pedigree, his sense of national origin. These were all sources of righteousness for Paul. He was saying, I belong to God because of my birth. I'm sure we could talk a lot about the ways that that can be incredibly relevant today, right? And then he goes on. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteous under the law, blameless. So Paul moves from these identity markers that, that he kind of possessed as, as, a, as a member of the nation of Israel to then the way that he acted, the way that he found his own righteousness in the way that he lived before the law. his zeal as a moral social crusader, that he, how he was passionate in and passionate for calling out people who were wrong and pursuing those people. And under the law, blameless. That he's saying that when he looked at the law of God, he said, yeah, I've done a pretty good job of keeping that. He was upholding all of the relevant standards. And Paul had invested his entire life, all of his identity, all of his energy in doing what he believed would prove him righteous, just like we do. And it made him incredibly self-confident. But then we read verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then he goes on in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. All of these things that Paul had put so much confidence in, now he counts them, he says, as rubbish. And the word there for rubbish, uh, another translation for that would be excrement. Trying to keep it at least a little bit, you know, polite because we're in church. But Paul is saying that this this thing that I that I had put all of my value in, I now actually consider offensive. He counts it all as loss. What would change someone like that? How does Paul go from all of these things he had previously put his righteousness in to now counting those things as rubbish, as loss, as offensive? It was an encounter with the risen and the resurrected Jesus. And Paul tells this story several times in the book of Acts. For the first time, he tells it in Acts 9. So Paul is in Jerusalem, and he's gotten a letter from the high priest there to go and to persecute people who are following Jesus in a different city in Damascus. So Paul is on the road from Jerusalem to, to Damascus hunting down Christians. And all of a sudden, there's this blinding light that appears. And what Saul hears are the words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul asks, who are you, Lord? And the Lord responds, I'm Jesus, who you are, who you are persecuting. And it was this encounter that totally reoriented Paul's life, that made him put down all of his attempts to prove his own righteousness. Why? because it was in encountering the risen Christ that Paul came into contact with true righteousness. 
And it was in coming to contact with this righteousness of Christ that Paul realized that all of his attempts to prove himself righteous fell abysmally short of what God actually required. What he found is that all of the ways that he was striving to prove himself actually displayed his unworthiness. That the ways that he was fighting to prove himself to God were actually him fighting against God. Remember, he's on his way to capture Christians and to persecute them. He thinks he's serving God, but he's actually working against him. And Paul, in that moment, Paul's deeds are exposed for what they really were. It's like the prophet Isaiah says, all of his best works were exposed as filthy rags. And that's true about us. All of the things that we are doing to prove our own rightness they're, they're corrupted by our own desire to prove our own rightness. Now that inherently makes all of those deeds incredibly selfish. When we encounter the risen Jesus, we're forced to that same realization as Paul that oh, all of the ways that I'm attempting to earn God's, right, earn God's verdict of righteous are just filthy rags. But the risen Christ doesn't leave Paul there. That same Jesus who Paul was actively persecuting, that same Jesus moved toward Paul in love. He came for Paul. And that wasn't once Paul had cleaned himself up and gotten things straightened out. He came for Paul while Paul was in the middle of persecuting Christians. He came to Paul with a kind of, with a kind of self-giving, never giving up, always and forever love that he displayed on the cross. And it was that love that overwhelmed Paul, that redeemed Paul, and that led Paul to count all of the ways of him trying to achieve his own righteousness as loss. It changed everything for Paul. Because when Paul surrendered to Christ as Lord, what he found was a new source of righteousness. Rather than having to prove his own righteousness, he found himself covered by the righteousness of Christ. That's what Paul tells us in the second half of verse 9. It says, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, right? That's all that stuff that Paul counted loss. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That that righteousness is from God means that that righteousness is a gift from God to Paul, not because Paul earned it, but because God delighted to give it to him. That righteousness wasn't Paul's righteousness. It was Christ's righteousness. So Paul, Paul's confidence now, standing before God on judgment day, is not in his own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. That when God looks at Paul, when God the Father looks at Paul, that what he sees is the righteousness and the perfection of his son which means there's no more proving, there's no more striving, there's no more earning. Paul got to come out from the awful weight of living up to the law in order to prove something to himself and to God and to others, and he was finally released into freedom. Into a freedom of having to live not to prove something to others, but because of what he's been given. And would you, would you like to put down the burden of having to prove yourself all the time? Would you like to crawl out from under the crushing weight of having to constantly measure yourself by your own and everyone else's yardsticks? I 
Would you like to come out of the, the crushing weight of religious legalism or the nagging sense that you're never doing enough for God? And the reality is, is that we can't deal with the existential kind of everyday uh, judgment that we're constantly under until we deal with the, the question of how are we ultimately going to be justified before God. Until we get a verdict outside of ourselves that declares us as righteous. And Paul, in this passage, is inviting us to come to Christ and to hear that verdict. He's inviting you to leave behind all of the ways you've been trying to prove your own righteousness, to count all of those things as loss, to recognize them for the excrement that they are, and instead to be found by faith in Christ, to accept the gift of his righteousness, relying on him, resting on him alone, rather than yourself for your own salvation. Whether that's for the first time or coming back after being gone for a long time, it's a call to find your freedom by resting in Christ. And that's where the road to recovery starts. But one of the things I love about this passage and the way that Paul uses it to frame his entire life is that what Paul is telling us is that finding our righteousness in Christ is not just the way that we come to Christ. It's also the way that we continue in Christ. So let's talk about how we live and walk on this road, right? Have you guys ever seen uh, the ads for Fiji water? Anybody? You know, okay, we got a few hands. Yes, yes, good, good, good. Uh, you, what is the tagline for Fiji water? Do you guys know? Okay, I, we can talk about their ad campaign. It's obviously not working very well. It's uh, untouched by human hands, right? Untouched by human hands. Wow, I don't know how exactly how that's supposed to happen. They're like, there's this gushing spring of water that comes out in a waterfall and somehow all of our plastic bottles just move perfectly under it and then appear, maybe they're carried on clouds and appear at Publix for us all to purchase, right? But, but the, what that ad is pulling on is this idea of like there's something pure about something that hasn't been touched by human hands, right? That's unsullied by humanity, and that we want that, we want a taste of that. And when we taste that, it's going to be so refreshing that we're just never going to, we're going to keep wanting it. That's what Fiji is kind of betting on, okay? They're pulling on a very real thing, <laughs> which is our knowledge of the fact that our human nature corrupts all the things it comes into contact with. And that's what's so beautiful about being given the righteousness of Christ is that it's a righteousness that's not contaminated by our humanity. It's a righteousness that's not contaminated by our sin. It's a righteousness that flows from the source of righteousness, which is God himself, and it comes from the spring of God's love for us. See, Jesus didn't come to make us righteous because God was uh, distant and, uh, and angry, and Jesus was kind of like trying to cajole the Father to come and like be okay with us. No, Jesus came because of the Father's great love for us. So the fact that we have been given Christ's righteousness is something that assures us of God's love for us. That it flows out of the spring of God's love for us. And it's that, it's that, free, it's that free grace that doesn't have to be earned, that is not about our effort, that is, the, that is the refreshing grace of the gospel that we drink when we first come to Christ, and it's the drink that nourishes us for the entire journey of the Christian life. Maybe you've already had the moment in your life of trusting Christ for his righteousness, but this battle of fighting to live our lives by grace is still a battle that we have to fight. That's what Paul tells us in verse two. 
He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What Paul is saying is, there are people out there who in a very real sense are trying to, for, or, are trying to convince the Philippian Christians that their righteousness should actually come from the things they're adding to the gospel. They're saying, oh, you know those things that Paul taught you about God's free grace? Well, that's good, but there's actually something a little bit more that you have to do. You actually now have to keep all of these additional laws for God to be pleased with you. And Paul is saying, that's not true at all. That's the opposite of the gospel. He's saying, in the same way that you came to Christ, you continue in him, not based on, on works to earn something from God, but based on the love and the grace that God has freely poured out on you. And that's true in an ultimate sense, that there are belief systems that are fighting to pull you away from God's grace, but it's also true in the existential sense, that there are day -to -day, there's a day-to-day -day battle convincing you or trying to convince you to live outside of God's grace. And as it people who are addicted to proving our own righteousness, there's also, there's also a fight against that that comes up from within us. And it looks like different things for different people, of course. But we all have those places that we run to prove our own righteousness, right? And those places are horrible prisons. Because they rob the gospel of power and of joy. I feel like this sermon has been so exposing to prep for myself this week of finding all the ways that I find my righteousness in things that I do. So what is it that you're putting in that blank to prove your own righteousness? Do you know what it is? If not, I'd encourage you. That's, that's worth it that you would spend time asking God to show you what that is. so that you can let the self-giving love of Jesus meet you there. So that you can put down those things that you used to prove yourself and so you can hear the gospel truth over your life that God has pronounced you righteous. Not because he's turning a blind eye to you, but because of his great love for you and, and the work of Jesus on your behalf. And maybe there's sin in your life that keeps you back from believing this. Because here's the thing about sin. Sin does not have the power to change what is true about you, but it has the power to change the way that you think and the way that you live. Hebrews talks about, uh, the author of Hebrews talks about how the deceitfulness of sin can harden our own hearts. And that sin can become a barrier that keeps us from God and from other people. We talk about how in Christ all of our sin has been dealt with, past, present, and future, but we say things like, yeah, but, yeah, but my sin... Yeah, but the thing that I struggle with that I fight against, the thing that I did last night, the thing that I did years ago, I mean, would you be willing to bring that into the light of the gospel of grace? To hear God say that even in that place that you were forgiven and even in that place your God says the verdict over you is that you have been declared righteous. would you bring that even out into the light with other people? That's what we talked about last week, right? Do you know where you, who gets your cries for help? Who gets to hear them? And we talked about how you need other people in this community to be, to be the people, some of the people who hear you cry out for help. 
And we need that because we need people to remind us of what we talked about today, what we're talking about now, that, that even in those places that God declares over you that you are righteous, that you have been forgiven. Don't let shame tell you that you've got to go and take those things and hide off in a corner with them. No, shame is a gift from God that tells us that we're limited, that we're broken, and that we need other people, that we need him. Would you let that be, would you let that shame that you feel be something that drives you toward community? Toward your need for being reminded of the gospel from people outside of yourself rather than letting it take you into dark corners alone? Because what we need to be reminded of is that our sin isn't what defines us, that it's the gospel of God's grace that defines us. It's his righteousness given to us that defines us. And this journey of recovery is a journey of loss, of losing and counting as loss all of those places that we went to find our comfort and our confidence before. But as we were reminded of, of, of what it means to lose our own righteousness and trust in Christ, that what we find then is the joy of that loss. Paul says in verse 7, I counted all as loss for the sake of Christ. That it's in losing our own righteousness that we're reminded of the righteousness that we've been given in Jesus and that we're reminded of the goodness of knowing and walking with him. And Paul, in this passage, it's amazing, but he, he lines up his life as he walks through and kind of describes it with what we talked about a few weeks ago in Philippians 2 where where he describes Jesus' humility in becoming a man, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, and then finding his glory there. Paul actually uses the very same verbs to describe his own life. And then what he's saying is in this journey of losing all the things that he counted as, as his own righteousness, that what he finds is that he is being conformed into the image of Jesus. That that's actually a place where he's finding and meeting with Jesus in his life, even in places of suffering. And so the, the call for us then is that we would come and as we go through this journey of losing and being reminded what it means to lose our own righteousness, that, that who we would meet in that place ultimately is Christ. That we'd be experiencing his love and his comfort and his joy as we were reminded of what he's done and achieved for us. So to close us up, we're gonna uh, read from the Heidelberg Catechism. And if you guys remember, uh, we've talked about this a few times, but catechisms are just a way of reminding ourselves, of teaching ourselves what is true about us uh, in Christ. And they kind of have a, a lot of them a, a historical connection to what the church has confessed for a long time is true about us in Christ. So if we can get that up on the screen. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask this first question. How are you righteous before God? And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna read through the answer together. It's a little bit longer than this first sentence, okay? <laughs> so brace yourselves. But it's good and would encourage you to think about it, meditate on it as we walk through it and let that be what guides us into worship together. Sound good? Okay. How are you righteous before God? Only by faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, of still being inclined toward all evil.